Each year, it is my privilege to produce for you more than 200 Cato Daily podcasts featuring Cato scholars, outside experts, journalists, lawmakers, and others with interesting things to say. And at Cato, we accept no government money. We are entirely funded by private citizens and organizations. That means both Cato and the Cato Daily Podcast are completely dependent on your support. To keep the Cato Daily Podcast strong and growing, we've launched a new podcast sponsor program for this holiday season. Any and all donations to support the podcast are most appreciated, but at the $1,000 level of support, you'll become a Cato patron sponsor, which means you'll receive all the benefits of patron sponsorship. Additionally, unless you object, I'll personally thank you on the podcast. Cato is a 501c3 charitable organization, which means that your gift is tax-deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. To learn more, visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor. That's cato.org slash podcast sponsor. And as always, thank you for listening. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, December 15th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. In many contexts, your face is your ID. And as technology develops to track individuals as they move about a city, governments are increasingly aware of that fact. Claire Garvey is an associate at the Georgetown Law Center on Privacy and Technology. At the Cato Institute's SpyCon, we spoke about the Wild West environment of governments and corporations making use of your face for their own ends. We were talking right before we started recording about uh, corporate uses of facial recognition technology that uh, the one you pointed to was casinos using facial recognition technology. And one upside for that might be compulsive gamblers who want to keep themselves out of a casino. The casino could use that technology when they're walking through the the doors and say, oh, that, that guy, he told us. He doesn't want to be in here. Let's get him out of here. That's right. And yet the same technology can be used sort of on the flip side. We see retail uh, stores use face recognition and lists of suspected shoplifters or high-value customers or, in one instance, known litigious individuals, maybe those individuals likely to slip and fall in the stores, to monitor who's coming into their store and encourage certain people and discourage others. Okay. So how, so far at least, have governments made use of facial recognition technology for crime fighting? Sure. We see face recognition increasingly used by law enforcement agencies to um, both catalog who they are arresting. So a lot of mugshot databases uh, are optimized for face recognition, but then also to investigate crimes. This is very common that law enforcement agencies, if they have a photo or a video of a crime being committed, of a suspect, maybe even of a witness or a deceased person, they can actually run that through a face recognition system. They do not need to know who the person is to try to make an identification because we now have uh, our biomet- our face is now our biometric. And, and uh, so many of the, the things that, that are, have been coming up repeatedly at this conference uh, deal with or at least raise the specter of flipping the burden of proof when it comes to people who might be suspected of committing crimes, that you have a crime that you know has been committed, then you go out and find evidence, and then you find people who may have committed that crime. This seems to, in some ways, create a a problem by proximity 
if you're in an area where a, a crime has been committed, you may be much more suspicious in general. It may be. And we also see law enforcement agencies use this to establish association as well. Face recognition is a way of offline tracking, essentially, because we present our face in public. Uh, in theory, we can be identified wherever we go as long as we're caught on camera. So agencies have been known to uh, park themselves outside of a courthouse, for example, and see who shows up to a suspected gang member's uh, preliminary hearing. And we don't know what's done with those photographs, but it's entirely plausible that every person who showed up at court that day landed up in a database of suspected, you know, someone suspected of gang activity simply by being in that place at that given time. Okay. So one of the things that you pointed out from your studies on this is that it is uh, very likely that 53% of the people listening to this are in some sort of government database with their facial features recorded. That's right. And it's actually far greater than that if we just look at how driver's license databases are um, biometrically scanned. So most DMVs across the country actually have a face recognition system that runs on those photos to deduplicate records, to check for identity theft, or check for fraud. The 53% represents uh, who we know are now in a database, one of those driver's license face recognition databases that have been opened up to law enforcement searches. So instead of just being searched to make sure you are only getting one driver's license or that somebody hasn't stolen your identity, law enforcement agencies are using those databases to conduct criminal investigations. So it is at least 53%, probably much higher. Yes, because there is a complete lack of transparency around the use of this technology. So what are the problems with the technology itself in terms of actually making determinations that say, oh, well, this person we're looking for, this is that guy? Face recognition is an imperfect biometric. It has accuracy issues. This is to be expected in some ways because it's collected remotely and it entirely depends on the quality of the photo being input um, to determine how accurate it is. So the more advanced the deployments will be, um, think of you know an investigative, um, a CCTV uh, camera footage or a surveillance camera footage, that's going to be pretty poor. There are going to be a lot of variables, meaning that the accuracy is going to going to decrease. Fortunately, in recognition of accuracy issues, most law enforcement agencies don't consider it a positive identification and instead consider it an investigative lead only, meaning that they have to corroborate the identity. However, what further corroboration is needed, what investigative lead only means, is far from clear. And what we're beginning to see is that all this means is that the prosecution won't introduce a face recognition match as identification evidence in court at this point in time. They will introduce a witness identification or an officer identification because the officer then looked at the photo and said, yeah, I think that's our guy. It does not necessarily mean that the identification was, in fact, independently corroborated. So we get into that parallel construction problem that we might have seen otherwise where they get the leads from one place and then... Uh, as uh, investigators sometimes do, get tunnel vision and firm up what a machine told them. That's right. And we may have a an undue suggestiveness 
uh, issue as well. An algorithm tells you this is your most likely candidate, or maybe it says this person matches your suspect at a 90% accuracy rate. Who is not going to give that a certain degree of weight, a certain degree of, of gravity, and pursue that lead first? Okay, so beyond the the, the technical issues with uh, facial recognition and their possible uh, the mistakes that could could come up with that, what how does that change how my police might do their work? How does it change the uh, expectation of not being unduly uh, harassed by the police or agencies or being put having your name listed in some sort of unaccountable database where you might be, find yourself unable to fly, you might find yourself unable to do a lot of things. Face recognition fundamentally changes the way law enforcement can do their jobs. It is a force multiplier. It makes investigations a lot faster, potentially. Um, it also fundamentally changes surveillance. We have never before had the ability to conduct mass surveillance, surveillance of a group of people biometrically from a distance and at secret. And that's what face recognition enables. So building on this, how does that change public spaces? We do assume a certain degree of anonymity in public spaces. Sure, our neighbor might say like, hey, I think I know you, a cute dog or whatever. But we don't generally anticipate that our movements are tracked, that law enforcement agencies can identify us wherever we are at a certain point. We certainly don't expect that if we're at a public demonstration, that our presence at that demonstration is logged and recorded because our face showed up there. Face recognition makes that possible. In your discussion, you mentioned that following the death of Freddie Gray, there were a lot of protests, a lot of crimes committed shortly after that. Um, and the city of Baltimore used a piece of technology to gather up all the, the names or identify as many people as they could who were participating in those protests. This is an instance where, um, and this, this information is from um, marketing materials from a social media monitoring company, Geofedia, um, that ACLU obtained. Geofedia says that the, the Baltimore County Police Department used their social media monitoring tools to take photos and videos offline from you know geotagged locations where the police knew they were um, there were protests taking place, ran those photos through face recognition to make identifications on the ground. The police have, to a certain de degree, refuted this, so it's not completely clear what landed up happening with these identifications, but it's entirely probable that this is happening, and we need only look to other countries um, to see that this is something that's very, very actively being done. And we like to say, you know, okay, this happens in Russia. It would never happen in the United States. As a practical matter, because we have no laws that restrict this type of use, what's to say that it won't be done here? Um, some of the data that you uh, made mention of, and you can uh, sort of c characterize it or, or talk about exactly how, where it came from, men are twice as likely to be uh, swept up. In, in these types of databases, is that right? Or surveilled based on that information? Uh, so African-Americans um, are more likely to be surveilled. So African-American communities are subject to far more surveillance than their proportion of the population suggests. Okay. 
In addition, African Americans represent a disproportionate amount of people in these databases because uh, of arrest rates. African Americans are arrested at far greater rates than their proportion of the population. So in, so, in some sense, that creates a create the potential for a suspicion just based on, you know, so, some your background, your your history. That's right, and it increases the risk of misidentifications. Compounding that is the fact that these algorithms perform differently depending on the demographics of the person they're searching for, particularly race, gender, and age. Depending on how the system's configured, this may mean they're more likely to miss the suspect or find the correct suspect, depending on your demographics. But with African Americans, when you're disproportionately searched for, disproportionately enrolled, in the database, it's a multiplied effect. It's a multiplier. Yes. And so, and, and at one point, you said that fifteen percent of women were likely surveilled for prurient reasons. Yes, that was a slide from uh, San Diego. They were evaluating their use of license plate readers and face recognition technology, and found that fifteen percent of of the searches for women were not done for criminal justice purposes. Uh, they were done for more voyeuristic purposes. Uh, Sixty-five percent of the searches for teens were done for no, on no suspicion at all, and that African Americans were surveilled up to two point five times more than their proportion of the population. So, what is the fix here? I mean, it's technology that sounds like it is like a lot of technologies. It seems like it is would could be incredibly useful for investigations, but there are no controls on it. It seems. Are there any states or cities that have said, these are the kinds of controls we're going to put on this so that it does not unduly influence the application of justice? The technology is undeniably useful. It can be used to keep us safe. As with any technology, this is a tool, right? It can be used for good and it can be used to make us less safe or to uh, invade our privacy. Um, and for the most part, law enforcement agencies um, aren't maliciously using this technology. The but, problem... But, but to, the, to the extent that they're getting tunnel vision about who their suspects might be or deciding whether or not somebody's a bad guy just based on uh, something an algorithm spits out at them. Right. Or taking shortcuts um, or not fundamentally understanding the technology well enough to do due diligence and corroborate an identification. So it really comes down to the, the problem really is this lack of legislative or administrative controls on the technology. We do see a handful of, of jurisdictions that have placed restrictions on its use. There are some that say probable cause is needed before a search is done. There are a couple of others that say reasonable suspicion is needed. Some say you can't search uh, for anybody except for a suspect. So you can't conduct searches for possible witnesses or um, even deceased persons, or whoever you want to search for. Those are positive. Um, there's one jurisdiction in Michigan. Uh, the Michigan State Police run very robust audits of how their system is used. So they know exactly uh, which of their agents are searching for whom and why. And this enables them to very carefully control how this technology is being used. But these are the exceptions. This is not the rule. There was a Supreme Court case a few years ago, Jones, where uh, a device was attached to a man's car. I think they had a warrant for it, but it expired at some point and followed him around for weeks or months. 
and uh, they got a cl very clear picture of this guy's activities. And the I believe it was the Supreme Court was I believe it was a unanimous decision against uh, against the government in that case. But in um, you know, with with cameras uh, and the and public events and our the government's ability and corporate corporations' ability to track our faces and provide this information at some point, you get to that level of being able to track somebody in their movements throughout an area. So at, w at what point does do we enter into that area where, oh, well, they're just tracking you 24-7, all of you, constantly? It comes down to the number of cameras and the number of real-time, the number of cameras that are connected to a real-time face recognition system. It's true. Face recognition enables you to be tracked remotely in secret, wherever your face shows up. So as long as there are enough cameras to pinpoint your location as you move around a, a given uh, city or, or town, uh, that type of tracking is, is um, all of a sudden enabled on a mass scale uh, without even needing to plant an individual device. The only thing that's needed is that you are in the database. So once those types of systems are connected to driver's license, photo databases, it's pretty much everybody in a given state. Claire Garvey is with the Georgetown Law Center on Privacy and Technology. She spoke at the Cato Institute's SpyCon held this week. This holiday season, consider supporting the Cato podcast and the broad mission of the Cato Institute by visiting cato.org slash podcast sponsor and learn more of the benefits of sponsorship. That's cato.org slash podcast sponsor.